You can turn to uh, chapter 19 of John, picking up in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which had been, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would grant us wisdom, that you would grant us insight, that we would see these things for what they are, that even as... Uh, it is said that this testimony was given that we also may believe. Grant us faith to believe. Not just generally believing in Jesus, but believing these things about Jesus. And believing their significance and import. Resting all of our lives upon them. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Years ago, there was a movie that came out by the name Proof of Life. You might remember Russell Crowe, Meg Ryan, all-star sort of cast. And the plot of the movie was essentially this, uh, that Meg Ryan's husband had been kidnapped in, I can't remember if it was Central or South America, some other country, in order to get the ransom money from the insurance company. And the, the whole point of Russell Crowe being there was that he was the insurance company negotiator. 
And one of the things he kept asking before they got the money was proof of life. They wanted proof that this man still lived or they would not get the ransom money. There's a sense in which this is that story turned upon its head. We don't want proof, proof of life here, but we actually need proof of death. Just as you need to provide proof of death in order to um, you know, take care of the will and inheritance, so here there needs to be proof of death in order for our release, our redemption, to know that the price required has been paid. Our big idea this evening is that Jesus is the Passover lamb that was slain for our release. As Passover lamb, Jesus was dead, but as we see, not broken. Jesus is dead, but not broken. This is taking place during the day of preparation, the day in which uh, they're going to slaughter the lambs that, of course, represented from the Exodus, the passing over of the people of Israel while God brought the curse of the firstborn slain upon the people of Egypt. They were passed over because of the blood of the lamb that would be placed upon the doorposts of their house. The destroyer should see the blood and then skip over or pass over that particular residence so they would not feel the sorrow and loss of the firstborn slain. That's the symbolism behind all that we see here. Because as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 5, 7b, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's the eyes uh, through which we must see, the lens through which we must see these events, which makes sense when we remember from the very beginning, he has been declared to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we saw at the very end of uh, the passage for Sunday that, that Jesus bowed his head, gave up his spirit after saying, it is finished. It has been popular among some people who are critical of Christianity to argue that Jesus merely swooned, weak from the loss of blood, the heat and the pain that he passed out, that he didn't really die. This would be significant, because in keeping with what he's going to fulfill in terms of the commands with regard to the Passover lamb, as well as the rest of the sacrifices for sin, the sacrificial animal must die. You don't just prick its finger or its paw and let a little blood drain out and go, aha, the sacrifice has been made, the sins have been forgiven, but the animal was to be slain in front of everybody to be seen. All of its blood poured out upon the altar and the land and the carcass carried away. There must be proof of death. And so it is with Jesus How does John show us that this idea of Jesus swooning of passing out is not true? 
Here's some of the evidence that he provides. The first we see is actually enabled by the Jewish leaders, which would, of course would be the last thing that they wanted to do. But uh, they did not want the corpses to remain upon the crosses during the Passover, lest it defile the land. And so they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, meaning the legs of the three men crucified, not their own legs, obviously. Okay. This is in order to speed up the process of their death. This is a very gruesome death to begin with. And of course, what you're trying to do when you're crucified is to push up with your legs so that you can breathe. Okay? Otherwise you suffocate. And so the breaking of the legs is, is not a mere fracture, but they would really break the bone all the way through, is so that you can no longer push up on your legs. Never not support your body with your legs, and therefore you can't breathe, and you're going to die much more quickly. So they're trying to speed up the process because someone could be upon a cross for a couple of days, depending how hot it was, how strong they were, how badly they had been beaten, any number of factors. Uh, this could actually go on for over a day. I can't conceive of that. Okay, and so the soldiers are given notice that they are to do this. What they would do is they would take a mallet, like the one, the one that they had draw, uh, driven the nails through the, uh, the executed men's limbs, or they would take the shovel that they used to put the, uh, dig the hole, and they would use them to break the legs of the men being executed. They started with the two men that were crucified with Jesus. They broke their legs, Though we see that one was promised paradise, we also see that his earthly suffering was not yet done. It did not get him a pass on his earthly suffering, the uh, earthly consequences of his sin. Okay. Both of them suffered in that way. But the soldiers, moving on to Jesus, see that he is dead. He doesn't seem to be breathing. His head is bowed. He's not crying out in agony. He's not crying for relief. There's nothing going on with Jesus at this point. And so they don't break his legs. John sees this as very important because of the tie with the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb's bones were not to be broken. Exodus 12 and Numbers 12 both give us this instruction that the people were not to break the bones of the lambs that they consumed for the Passover. We also see in Psalm 34 the interesting promise that is given to the righteous one. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So Jesus is not only the Passover lamb, but he is the righteous one, as we see in uh, 1 John chapter 2. And his bones are not broken, but he is kept by God. Now this in and of itself does not prove his death. It just means that these men thought he was dead. But it wasn't over. John notes that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Why is that significant? it would certainly give a clue as to whether he had merely swooned or passed out. 
If you remember the charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War, one of those wars we don't think about. I mean, it's kind of odd to me to think, okay, Britain and Russia fighting. But they did. And the Charge of the Light Brigade was a famous battle, a sad battle, an unfortunate battle, because there was a miscommunication. And so the cavalry, the Light Brigade, went to the wrong, attacked the wrong artillery group, not the one that was retreating to destroy it, but one that was fully fortified and waiting for them, and they got obliterated, essentially. But they were brave. Well, eyewitnesses to the event indicated that the Cossacks would go out into the fields and they would jab the British soldiers to make sure they're dead. There would be a response. And so the response of Jesus' body was not that he woke up, but the response of Jesus' body was simply to bleed. Blood and water issuing most likely from the, the abdominal, the abdominal cavity, but the chest cavity where the fluid and the, and the blood could still um, accumulate. And so the wound in the side releases the blood and water that had accumulated in his death. And so these experienced soldiers thought he was dead, proved he was dead. And this was witnessed, of course, by what, who, the person we believe to be John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was there with the cadre of Marys and Salome. That was a very popular name. It's like Steve was when I was a kid, actually. I had three Steves in my elementary class. So. so Mary was a very popular name. All of these are witnesses to the death of Jesus and the evidence that proved his death. And John makes mention of this, that he testifies to this because it was so important that you might believe. And so he reminds us that the benefits of, of Jesus' death, the benefits that flow from his death, are appropriated or received by us by faith. And that the witness of John the evangelist is given to foster just such a saving faith. For we believe and this is why Paul preached Christ and him crucified. We need a bleeding, dying, dead Savior. We can trust that the death of Jesus was a fact, not just that he died because he got old, but he died in this particular way, that he died as the Passover lamb in our place. And so Jesus' saving work is sufficient because he died as that Passover lamb for us. Secondly, we only have two points tonight. We're good. Dead, Jesus was buried among the rich. Roman authorities usually allowed the bodies of dead prisoners to be taken by the families, but there's one exception, and that exception is Sedition. If you were guilty of revolting or trying to lead a revolt against the Romans, you would be left upon the cross for days upon days until you fell off the cross, basically. You would be left for the vultures 
you would be left to turn putrid because they wanted everyone to know what happens if you take on Rome. And so what we see here is an exception to that normal rule. We see Joseph and we see Nicodemus. What's interesting about Joseph and Nicodemus is that both of them were secret disciples of Jesus. It says here that Joseph of Arimathea was one because he feared the Jewish leaders. We know from John chapter 3 that Nicodemus showed up at night precisely because he feared the Jewish leaders. These men did not want to lose their place and position on account of Jesus. And yet, in this moment, we see that they risk everything for Jesus. While his open disciples have run and fled, except for John, who's the only one we know who is at the cross, these men come forward. We see that Joseph of Arimathea in Mark 15 is a respected member of the council. He is part of the council that put Jesus to death. We don't know if he said no to that and got overruled by the rest. But we do know, as Mark mentions, that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke, in chapter 23, notes that he's from the town of Arimathea, also that he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, and clarifies that for us, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And so this moment brings out that, that opportunity when we see Peter denying Jesus, we see Joseph of Arimathea standing up for Jesus, being perhaps the only voice that said no to his execution. We see also that Joseph was a rich man as a member of the Sanhedrin. We know from uh, John 3 that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We're presuming that the, their servants assisted them in this task because we think of uh, how much weight is going to be moved around, and these are probably not men used to uh, such physical labor. But they also most likely divided the tasks because there's the going to Pilate and asking for the body, and there's the procuring of the 75 pounds of spices that has to get done. And so Joseph is the one, probably because he's a member of the Sanhedrin and therefore would be known to Pilate, who approaches him asking for the body of Jesus to be released to them. And you kind of wonder, why is it that Pilate says yes? Aside from the providence of God. Is it because he's just trying to kind of stick it to the Jewish leaders one more time? I mean, you and I both know, you know, kind of this, you know, this is Pilate thinking. You and I both know that Jesus isn't really guilty. And I didn't want to put him to death anyway. So to kind of stick it to you, I'm going to let this guy take him so he won't be up there on the cross for days and days. In fact, you know, you sort of wanted it because you wanted all of them dead. You wanted their legs broken so they could be taken down. 
So we're not sure exactly why Pilate does this, but he breaks with normal protocol and does this very thing. And so Joseph, and I'm imagining his servants, go and take Jesus down from the cross. But time is passing. The Sabbath is upon them. Remember, it's reckoned from the sunfall. And so sunset is is approaching. They need to finish this task before the sun sets. Fortunately for them, in the providence of God, Joseph had a tomb nearby. There was a garden right nearby, and he had a brand new tomb that had never been used that they were going to use that night, that afternoon. And so they bring Jesus, and they bring the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which was customary for the Jews. Uh, they, they did not remove the organs like the uh, Egyptians did when they basically buried somebody. So this is um, 75 pounds of these spices in a sense to um, keep the stench from getting too big, too great. And so they wrap him. Think about that for a moment. Imagine for a second that he did swoon. You've been scourged. You've been exposed to the sun all day. He'd been nailed to a cross. He's as good as dead. They're going to wrap him up in 75 pounds of spices. If he wakes up, he's not moving. Right? He's now 200 plus pounds of rigid dead weight that these men are having to move around. We see from other texts, and particularly in, in, uh, in Luke, that this tomb was cut in stone. Okay, This will be important on Sunday. Cut in stone means that there's no one who's digging into that cave. It would take them far longer to try and go from perhaps an open tomb into that tomb to try and steal the body of Jesus. Okay. It's going to be, of course, covered by a large rock, a huge stone that, knew, that a few men would have to roll in and out of place. Proof that he's dead, that he's buried. Okay. Not only that, but the Jewish leaders, afraid that his disciples would try to come and take him, asked Pilate, and they got guards, Roman guards, who, would, who sealed the, the, uh, the door, the stone, and guarded it over the weekend. So, stations, so uh, soldiers are stationed there to prevent the theft of the body. Moving the stone would be loud, so even if they fell asleep, they're going to get up. So we see Jesus is dead. He's buried. And that really is the bottom line for this portion. That's really what the testimony of these many witnesses are indicating. Because now we not only have the soldiers, the women, John, but we have Joseph and Nicodemus who handled the body, who prepared the body for death with their servants. They know that he's dead, that he's buried. 
as I ponder this, I'm reminded of what happened to the disciples. In a sense, what ought to happen to us? The death of their earthly hopes happened. They still, coming to the end, probably still desired this earthly kingdom. Jesus being an earthly king. That dream died with the death of Jesus. Our if-onlys need to die. Our earthly hopes need to die. If only we elect the right president. (laughs) You have no chance now. (laughs) If only I were married. If only my marriage was better. If only I had children. If only I had a grandchild. If only I had a better job. If onlys. If onlys. We all have them. There's a sense in which they must die. I can't help thinking of the Lord of the Rings. At the end of, or near the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, who was the most important person from an earthly perspective that was part of the fellowship? Who was the one, one person who they really couldn't do without? So I imagine they thought, I would have voted Gandalf. You know, Frodo, he's a hobbit, who cares? <laughs> right? We can we got a couple more hobbits. One of them can bring the ring if necessary. But Gandalf is the one, he's the magician, he's the wizard, he has powers that they're, you know, beyond what we understand. He's the one who knows the lay of the land because we really don't know how old this guy is, but he's wandered the earth. Gandalf the Grey is the one guy we don't want dying and who fights with, I can't remember what it was, a Balrog or a demon or whatever, and falls down into the heart of the earth. They didn't focus on this in the movie as much because you've got to keep the thing going, <laughs> you know. But what would you think in that moment? You get away from the orcs, but you have no Gandalf. You have no wizard. You have no leader. He's the one who got this group together in the first place. He's the one that brought us to the elves. I'd want to pack it up and go home. And that's how the disciples felt. It's over. Our earthly hopes have to die. Otherwise, our eternal hopes will never spring forth. Because we'll keep tossing the earthly hopes on top. Not only that, but we should also see on the far side of this perhaps that the fear of death should no longer hold us. Because we see that Jesus conquers death by suffering death. We'll see on Sunday that He wins. 
And because He wins, all who are, who are united to Him win. And so Jesus destroys death's grip upon those who believe. Proof of death. Sounds like the title of a really bad B movie. Or perhaps like a recent episode of The Walking Dead. But our salvation really does hinge upon the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people throughout the world. If he didn't die, we're still in our sins. We're still guilty. We're still condemned. He has to die. And so John records these events to encourage our faith, to let us know, yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. You're no longer in your sins if you believe. But let's not jump to Sunday just yet. Let's not jump to the happily ever after. Let's spend a few days, perhaps, feeling some of the hopelessness, some of the loss, some of the fear of watching all of your earthly hopes come crashing down. Don't move too quickly to the good news. But let the loss shape your life. Because we too easily live for those earthly hopes. They too quickly spring back up and clamor for our attention. Let us feel that precisely so that eternal hope will grow strong and will grow fast and will grow deep and high. so that we won't be undone when an election doesn't go the way we want it to go. When our team doesn't win the Super Bowl. When our marriage isn't quite what we wanted it to be. Or at least not that day. So that we have a faith that can sustain us through earth's disappointments, because they will be many. Let's pray. Father, Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like for us when grief touches us, when sorrow comes to our house what it's like when sorrow fills our hearts and shakes our minds. Father, I ask that You would remind us of this. That You would remind us of His promise to never leave us nor forsake us. That You would remind us that He has gone through the door of death for us to break the power of death, to set us free from the works of the evil one, that we would have life and life abundant. So 
So help us to meditate on this. So it's not just an intellectual idea, but it's something that we rest in. We hope in. We long in. We desire more deeply in. So that our hearts are really reshaped by Christ and Him crucified. Just as Paul wanted the Corinthians. The Corinthians who put their hopes in all the wrong things at times. And we're the same people. Help us to rest in Christ and Him crucified. And thank you for John telling us about it. In Jesus' name, amen.